Hey there, space fans. This is Robin, chief of content of Supercluster. And we are back with you today in the wake of Crew-1, the successful flight of the Resilience Dragon to the International Space Station. The crew has arrived, as you all know. It's been all over social media. But I've decided to call uh, my colleague, Michael Sheets, the space reporter of CNBC. Michael, it's really great to have you on the show again. Hey, Robin, it's good to be back. I always love supporting what you are doing here at Supercluster and uh, great to be back on the podcast. We're really happy to have you. The reason we're calling you today, Michael, is because we want to live vicariously through you and your experience down at Cape Canaveral over the course of the last week. Now, personally, I haven't been able to go down to Florida for a couple missions, including Crew One, but we did dispatch Eric Kuna and John Krause to shoot the mission, and uh, we got spectacular results from that move. So yeah, Michael, you went down there. Uh, some of our other colleagues were down there, Lauren Grush, Emery Kelly, you know, the Cape Canaveral gang. It was really cool to see everyone down there covering this really historic mission. So first, my first question for you, Michael, is why go down there for this? I think it's really important when you think about the, the context of why this was historic to actually witness it and be able to tell people about what that experience was like and also get a sense of the really unique environment that we're in right now. I, I mean, I'll say that it was, there was quite a bit of deja vu because even just like Demo 2, which I was at in May, there was a 50% chance of weather. You know, it was really dicey up until the last couple hours and we realized like this was really happening. Right. So there's something about being there and being in the environment and seeing the astronauts. And, you know, I, I, there was one moment I, when I drove down and they drove by and the Tesla Model X is on their way out to the pad. Like actually the visceral experience helped sink into what kind of a moment this was. I, I'd say the secondarily, the other big thing is because my job, I've been doing also on air work as well as uh, reporting online that, you know, you can't really tell that story in terms of what was happening at Kennedy Space Center if you're not really there. It's pretty difficult to do so. And so for me, you know, I have my own personal vehicle. I was willing to, you know, drive down and and my and CNBC supported me in that. So, you know, the opportunity to be there in person was one that not many people got. And I didn't want to take it for granted uh, being offered that. Right. And that is a great perspective on it because there are very limited spots for journalists now because of the pandemic. Now, going back to DM2, both Michael and I were there. We did not see each other there. And at the time, we, we both lived in Brooklyn and I don't live in New York anymore. I live in near Washington, D.C. But at that time, we both went down to Cape Canaveral, Kennedy Space Center for that mission with Bob and Doug. And even though we were probably a couple hundred feet away from each other, we did not see each other. That's the kind of restrictions that are in place at Kennedy Space Center to keep everyone safe. And just recalling my DM2 experience, the astronauts driving by in their Teslas was a really fun moment for everyone. And they, they drove by two locations where journalists are up on the, like by the mound and down by the uh, VAB area. So everyone gets to see them. My moment was making eye contact with Doug Hurley. And him giving the thumbs up, which was really cool. So, Michael, I saw that you guys had that experience with the drive-by and everything. And I love that part of the process. And I love that NASA is going out of their way to show 
that stuff on the live stream for people at home. I think those moments really connect people to it, especially in these circumstances when there can only be a small amount of people there. Yeah, I'd say it's pretty significant that NASA starts their webcast about like four hours before the launch. Yeah. Obviously, you know, huge shout out to so many hosts that on the NASA and SpaceX side that did real, you know, near constant coverage. And because of that, I think even though there was a pandemic and people, you know, there's a fraction of as many visitors and VIPs on site to come, come see this in person, that the NASA and SpaceX did a nice job of getting giving a look into the preparations and, and you know, all the excitement and the buildup into the moment of the launch itself. I, I will say too, I mean, you and I didn't see each other at Demo 2, which to those at home, you might think like, well, you guys were at Kennedy Space Center. Like, you know, it's only a few miles of an area in terms of where you drive around to get to the press site, et cetera. And you, you would think that you would run into each other, but because of how, you know, spread out everything was, right. you really necessarily don't. And, you know, I still, even on this this trip, I only even saw our, our colleague and friend, Lauren, because we met up for dinner outside of the mission. I mean, I, did, I you know, we didn't actually cross paths, even though both of us were at, on site at Kennedy at yeah. some point during the mission. And I think that because these are crew missions, especially, the protocols are far more strict and there's a lot more of them. Right. Obviously, we're always speaking in context of, oh, after this is all over. But <laughs> do we hope that we could cover crew missions like our predecessors covered shuttle missions, of course. Back in those days, there were three, 400 journalists on site for shuttle launches. I want to personally be part of that fanfare and part of that excitement. I want to see all the nation's news crews out there again on the lawn by the countdown clock. And, you know, I, I hope we do get back to that someday. No, I'll just say, I honestly think we will get back to that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. seeing the excitement and the, the fact that no matter who is launching and what vehicle it is, if if humans are going to space from the United States, like there is clearly always going to be this incredible media focus until it's as benign as commercial air travel, which right. frankly is still years and years away. Still years uh, away. That, that aspect of it, the excitement of it is not going anywhere. Let's talk about, before we get into the mission and its implications, I do want to talk about this other space tourism that I like to, to, I don't want to confuse people, but I call it space tourism because I'm talking about Florida and the space coast. Now, Michael, you were at Falcon Heavy. I think a lot of the, there were a lot of numbers thrown out there, but I feel like the safe number between 85 and 100,000 people showed up to Cape Canaveral to witness SpaceX launch the first Falcon Heavy, which was a crazy thing. It was what Florida was looking forward to. A lot of these business interests and tourism boards, they were looking forward to this jump in tourism because of the space industry and the space community and, what, and what's being done in, in the advancements. So 100,000, let's say, came to the Falcon Heavy launch. We obviously did not get that number for Demo 2 because that was in May and that was pandemic time. That was the first wave of the pandemic. And Michael, how would you compare this time you know, last week to May, was it the same amount of people? Was it easy for you to get accommodations? Was there a ton of traffic getting to work? There, there really wasn't. And it was very, very similar. And the Falcon Heavy demonstration mission is a great comparison 
due to the amount uh, of interest. I remember, you know, sitting in line behind several hundred other reporters getting in the gates at, at Kennedy and seeing already streams of people flocking to visitor, the visitor complex. You know, I drove into the Space Center. There was one car in front of me and I looked over and, you know, the stands are that are there at the visitor complex for people to sit and watch launches. We're just sitting there empty with no one around. So it, it, it just feels a really surreal to be there in person, especially in light of how significant of a moment that was. One, one of my favorite quotes that I put in one of my stories was NASA's commercial spaceflight director, Phil McAllister. He's, you know, he said, I think in 20 years, we're going to look back on this as really the beginning of a new era. And we're going to really acknowledge how significant of a milestone Crew 1's launch was. But really? it's something that I think is going to take even a little bit longer to sink in because, you know, so few people were there to experience it. And and as much as, you know, the Internet and, and social media are you know, ways to communicate and spread the word about what's going on, there's still, you know, nothing like having hundreds of reporters from all over the world telling all of their, you know, regions and audiences what, you know, happened and what that experience was like. And not having nearly as many people means that's limited. So I think you'll get more of like a slow fade, especially, you know, if this pandemic is able to subsist to where they're able to, by crew two, crew three, you know, start opening the doors a lot more, then mm-hmm. I think we'll see a lot more excitement start to kind of reach people in a, in a, in a different way. Yeah, and I agree. I think there there's really nothing like communicating in a, a first person to your audience. Michael mentioned earlier that he did a television spot. I actually tuned into it on my television. <laughs> I still have cable and um, I tuned in and it was really great. I also went over to CNN that day and kept CNN on for like four hours. And they did a ton of coverage of Crew 1. They was on the bottom scroll for a few hours too. Um, that's really great to see that national coverage. And I think the there's an interest, obviously. Supercluster is new to the game. Michael, the space beat outside of business, oh, well, that includes business. Is that fairly new at CNBC? Yes. I mean, we didn't have anyone full-time covering the, the space industry. I mean, we had a I have a few colleagues that over the last you know decade covered it to some certain extent, but oftentimes it was a piece of the broader you know aerospace or industrials coverage, and it wasn't something that was a sole focus of a reporter. So before I came to CNBC, as far as I'm aware in, in CNBC's existence, we you know I'm the first CNBC space reporter specifically, and with that comes loads of personal milestones. One thing that I'll add uh, specifically to Crew One. As you know, I, I got to see Demo 2, obviously the first astronaut launch for SpaceX, got to see the first Falcon Heavy launch, but Crew-1 was the first night launch that I'd ever seen. I've been to Vandenberg, oh, wow. I've seen launches from there, but every single launch I've been to to date has always been during the daytime. I don't know how that happened because there are plenty of night launches, but I will add just the feeling, you know, I... Three minutes to launch, you know, I'd been updating our live blog coverage of the uh, mission as we were going along. Three minutes to launch, I sprinted outside, ran up to the roof of, you know, the NBC building that's there, uh, where mm-hmm. we host all of our different outlets and, and under one roof, ran up to the rooftop and, you know, stood there three miles away, watched it with my own eyes and just the feeling, because I mean, it was 
just a clear, clear Florida Perfect. evening and yeah. the feeling of just the, the rumble and really the crackle of the engines was just something that started shaking the building. And you just got to really see in awe, all, as bright as the sun, the Falcon 9 rocket lifting off. And I mean, I think there's a, a lot of excitement and respect for the engineering you get behind watching any launch, no matter what it is. But there's a, something just uh, intangibly different when you look at it and you can see this rocket lit up clear as day in the in the nighttime and realize that there are four human beings on top of that rocket headed for orbit. I mean, there's there's nothing really that tops that that moment of you know yeah. just standing there and watching it slowly disappear and in hearing the sound slowly fade away. It, it is is really breathtaking. You know, when Michael says it's bright as the sun, a rocket launch at that time, especially with uh, nine Merlin engines, really turns night to day for a few moments. Uh, it's really an extraordinary thing to see. And thank you for that description, Michael. The, the, the gravity, uh, for lack of a better word, of what is happening down at Cape Canaveral cannot be understated. It's very, very important that we commercialize and when I say commercialize, I really mean normalize. I don't know if those two words should be equated to one another, but that's what we're going to talk about. Right. Michael, how far are we from this being, or is it already viable? And you know, what's viability here? How, where, what are we looking at in terms of normalcy? I, I think it's a fantastic question. And, and there's plenty of words that get used in the space industry. Commercial is a good example of one where it can mean a lot of different things it, in some respects, in terms of what folks in the industry define as commercial. It's you know private. So like not the aerospace contractors, but it, it gets muddled around because there's you know new a new era of what commercial really means kind of happening. And, and even some of those contractors are involved in that. So you know, it's not it's not a perfect term, but I think viability is a more interesting discussion. And I think when we discuss what, you know, SpaceX delivering, you know, a human capable transportation system means, it means right now that every six months or so, that company is going to be launching astronauts into space, whether or not they're headed to the International Space Station as well. I think that's a really fascinating piece of all of this is right. that, you know, after the launch, you know, the, the president of Israel is announcing that the second member of the Axiom AX-1 crew, right. right? And that crew is a fully private mission. You know, that that is a, a mission that Axiom is coordinating and, and running and are, is being contracted through SpaceX. I mean, talk about hands off from a government perspective of what spaceflight looks like with this mission as compared to the decades prior. And then, right. you know, you add on to that, in addition to AX-1, you add on to the free flyer mission that's, you know, into works for space adventures. You add into, you know, other ways that NASA is thinking about using Crew Dragon and, and the capability. I, I, I would be really fascinated to hear what the discussions right now are within NASA of how beyond just the commercial crew program, because remember, you know, they're on, this was the first of six contracted missions. So, right. you know, for one, there's how do we extend this? What does it look like beyond this? For Secondarily, I, I'm sure there's folks at NASA going like, what other missions could we do? Are, are there other open opportunities, slots, you know, extra cargo room, 
what what the what that looks like is going to be really I think interesting in, in the next year as this kind of gives the green light to really start thinking about that in a real way in a way that was only hypothetical before and we were kind of waiting for development to end and like NASA really stressed you know this is the beginning of operational missions so we're transitioning into this kind of regular period of spaceflight and I think that's that's incredible because it starts tapping into you know just new opportunities that are hard to realize until you actually have a capability that can provide that service because until then you know there's nothing that's that's really you know actually capable of doing that and I think that's where it's really interesting you know I and a bunch of other reporters were able to speak to SpaceX's Gwen Shotwell after the launch. And I even caught up with her just to clarify a little bit after after the press conference. And they are planning and they are at least in the works of manufacturing up to five Crew Dragon capsules and up to three Cargo Dragon capsules. That, that's a fleet of eight spacecraft on rotation that they can begin you, you know using for missions. That, that point, I think... It'll be really fascinating to see, you know, from the demo two data, how quickly they're able to refurbish that, what that refurbishment cost looks like, and then go from there. I think there's, we're going to learn a lot more about this in the next, you know, six months or so. When it comes to the significance of these missions, there are really two, you know, I feel equal goals here. One is to prove that they can safely transport humans to and from space. The other is to push the reusability aspect of their hardware through Dragon, through Falcon. Now, Michael, you mentioned that they're going to pre-build these Dragons and put them in rotation. That's incredible. They're also going to refly the Crew-1 Falcon 9 booster, correct? Right. No, that's, that's right. And that was actually kind of a, a nervous moment uh, yesterday. I think a lot of right. people in the space industry were watching pretty closely because, you know, the, the Crew-1 booster landed. Everyone was like, great, you know, that, that seems very routine. We kind of forgot about that booster as the right. focused on the mission, understandably, right? There's four yes. people on their way to the space station. But then all of a sudden, the tension quickly shifted when that, you know, barge appeared on the horizon. And I, I credit to all the folks down at, at the Cape and, and Port Canaveral that do a great job covering, you know, providing live streams and photography and everything. There's just so many great different people you can follow on Twitter and on Instagram that keep up with that. And the booster leaning, I, I, I'll be honest, I was, I was worried because I could see the tilt. I looked at, you know, how much swell period there was in the water. And I, I <laughs> had no idea, like, what are the, the limits of this hardware? What's the point at which the leg can't take any more pressure? Um, because they want to use it for crew too. That specifically is why I was worried is like, not because, oh, like we're going to lose a booster, but, you know, NASA's plan for what this looks like would be dramatically shifting. So I, I think it's it's going to be great to hear from NASA, hopefully even in the next few weeks, about what that boost, booster re- refurbishment looks like. And maybe we even get a better picture of Falcon 9 refurbishment out of this because you know NASA as a public-facing agency discloses and, and is required to disclose so much more information than SpaceX does as a private company. So we might even get a little bit of a cl- more clear picture into what Falcon 9 refurbishment at this point in time looks like. Right. Crew 2 flying on a a flight-proven or reusable rocket will be extraordinarily important for SpaceX and their long-term vision. You know, as everyone knows, they're simultaneously building out Starship down in Boca Chica, Texas. Now, the intention of that spacecraft is to combine the technologies of Dragon and Falcon into 
one multi-purpose vehicle, but that multi-purpose vehicle has to be fully reusable and fly humans. <laughs> and so when you think of Crew 2 flying humans on a flight-proven rocket, that is such a big milestone for SpaceX's individual development. Obviously, this will be you know NASA's second operational flight. NASA is starting to prove out that this commercial crew program, like we said, is viable. Now, tough pill to swallow. This program was supposed to have two carriers. That was part of the, you know, the aspect of making sure that human spaceflight continues and is consistent on, Amer- on U.S. soil. And we didn't have to depend on a, a foreign nation for that kind of help. With Starliner so delayed, Michael, I mean, does that kind of show the risk? Um, did we think, did we put too much faith in just having two? I don't think we've put too much faith in just having two. I think more than anything, this has validated the reasons many pushed and and several key figures Mm -hmm. pushed to have more than one commercial crew provider. And I think it emphasizes the importance because, you know, in in another world, in another reality, it's, you know, SpaceX has software delays and Boeing doesn't. And, you know, this is a completely switched scenario. But right. even in that reality, you'd still have one company with a spacecraft flying to orbit, you know, not right. necessarily on time. Obviously, both of these programs have been de- delayed in development. But I think more than anything else, it, it validates the importance of having two and, and having this be a competitive process right. in which these companies have to compete for contracts is so important. And I think uh, in addition to that, uh, obviously, it was uh, disappointing to hear, you know, NASA now saying, it's looking more like first quarter 2021 for mm-hmm. that Boeing Starliner OFT2, the uncrewed uh, flight redo test. Right. And so that, I think, is going to be closely watched because NASA has been saying that the, the pacing item now is software, and that was the crux still of the flight mission. And we're coming up on 12 months since that, that mission launched. Right. So I think it's... It, it, for me, more than anything else, emphasizes and validates why it was important to have two different companies in commercial crew and why when you want to put this much funding into development, why having a competitive process helps in the long run and, and why it can pay off is not just because it can lower costs, but if one person suffers delays, it doesn't necessarily push back the entire program. And I mean, this very well could be a scenario we see happen with HLS, you know, the Human Landing Systems Program. Whether or not a 2024 date remains in effect, HLS, you know, can continue to get funding. And you could see two of these three teams, you know, continue forward in, you know, come February. And I think based off of what we've learned at a commercial crew, it makes sense that we should continue having at least two companies competing for contracts and building landers. Because if one lander, you know, gets delayed, NASA doesn't have to go, ah, crap, HLS program shot. We can't, you know, get to the moon. We can't launch astronauts to the moon. No, there'll be another company, another team. We're moving forward that uh, toward that goal. So I think that's the biggest learning I'd take away. Um, And, and I, I really am hopeful that Boeing can continue to sort through the issues it seems like they've really taken a tough and hard look uh, in the mirror at what they needed to do to get Starliner back on track. And uh, they I hired just, SpaceX's engineer. 
software engineer. Yeah, that was a, that was a big, big hire. And, you know, one of the common responses I heard from a couple of people in industry is, you know, it's too bad that this person, you know, this guy wasn't hired a couple of years prior. And if anything, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's just a pointing in the direction that Boeing can now turn and shift. Like we know with many of these larger aerospace contractors where space is just a small percentage, a small piece of their business, that right. change can be slow. And so that, you know, cultural shift hopefully is is well underway with hiring such as that one. Now, Michael, I wanted to shift to other sectors of our industry here. And today is November 20th. Michael and I are taping at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Last night, Rocket Lab, a small launcher based out in L.A. with a launch pad in New Zealand and now a second launch pad here in Virginia. Michael, what are the implications of this small company? being able to recover their electron booster. This is what occurred last night, right? They dropped the booster for a soft landing on the ocean surface and they recovered it with a boat. Right, right. And they, you know, even Rocket Lab CEO, Peter Beck, he spoke to reporters before this mission just to kind of give us a rundown of what this was going to look like, what they were trying to do and what they weren't trying to do. And I, I love this one quote. He said that, we're trying to do every single piece of the recovery process except for the part where we catch it with a helicopter, which is mm-hmm. tremendous. Like that, the, that they're already at this point in development of a program that's very much a benefit to their launch business rather than a core piece of their launch business is awesome. And I mean, we even saw, you know, Elon Musk chiming in and, right. and congratulating Peter and congratulating Rocket Lab on, on, the, on the successful recovery. And the next step is going to be catching it with a helicopter so that they can really make sure those engines don't get seawater in them. And so I think, well, it'll be, it'll be great to see how the rocket looks, how it survived. Um, I'm sure Rocket Lab will give us some updates in the, in the coming weeks. But I mean, Peter even said this is a technology they hope to bring everywhere they go. And as we know, they're not just planning to launch from New Zealand for the indefinite future. They're working towards completing the, the certification process to launch out of NASA's WALPS facility in Virginia. So, it, I mean, it's, it's great because from their perspective, they're investing in a piece of the technology portfolio that even if it doesn't necessarily save them money on each launch, even if reusability for them, Rocket Lab, is not this you know, cost-benefit analysis that is just bringing their prices even down further, or at least improving their profit margins. Uh, the one thing that Peter said that this adds for them is the ability to change the economics of production and the economics behind how quickly they can launch. Because right now, one of the big pacing items for them is going to be production in terms of how quickly they can launch missions. And if they can basically take one rocket and re-enter it back into that production cycle effectively, they're they're actually speeding that up more than anything else. And that has to be helpful, like in a major way. It is. Even if they're not, you know, even if they're not like saving the millions of dollars that SpaceX may be saving. But because I remember Peter Beck back in the day used to say, oh, we'll never do this because the, the mass to launch ratio isn't like what it needs to be for it to turn a greater profit. But what you're saying is puts it into perspective. It's like, listen, if they can speed up their manufacturing process, that is something, right? That is what the military and what even the civilian sector is looking for in a launcher is consistency and rapid deployment. 
I mean, it's like you're ready to go when you're ready to go. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that Rocket Lab is trying to get themselves on that curve of, hey, we can launch in a reasonable amount of time. I think generally in the last five years, even as the commercial industry grows, we're still seeing a backlog of launches. One, people waiting a couple of years, two, three, four, five years to launch their product. That is not you know, sustainable in the long run. So I think that it is important, even if it's not a, a cost you know, salvaging thing, it's more of a, hey, this is good customer service. We have a rocket ready to go. Right. Yeah. I, I think that availability of launch, you know, I, I say speeding up the manufacturer process and I mean it in, in an effective sense more than a literal sense. Right. Um, because, right. you know, you're reentering that that booster back into the fold. And I think that's that's something the flexibility is something that a lot of people are chasing in addition to the, the rapid launch cadence. So and I think that in addition to that, it's. Uh, a big piece of why I see a lot of Wall Street analysts that I talk to here in New York getting more inc- excited about the space industry because improvements and innovation beget more improvements and more innovation. So Rocket Lab launching more often means there's more satellite operators and more technologies that are reaching space. You know, SpaceX bringing down the cost per kilogram to launch with reusability and with ride shares gets more of these projects into space, which then has, you know, a ripple effect beyond that into the rest of, you know, beyond even the space industry itself. And so I think that's the excitement that a lot of people have is when you have more companies doing this and raising the profile and, and raising the ability to, to get into space, uh, it starts to really build on itself and, and the momentum really has this exponential effect on growth. Opening up access means opening up access for sort of all the sectors that trickle down from the top. And when I mean the top, I mean space. When you're talking about universities, small companies, you know, startups that need space access. And that, that's the road that we're going on. And that's why there's more launchers coming onto the scene. Firefly, Relativity. Michael, your opinion. So we have, we have Rocket Labs doing very well as a small launcher. We have Virgin Orbit coming up. We have Relatively Firefly. What's the next company... To like make the big, you know, get past their next milestone, get past, you know, get to where Rocket Lab is. I, I'd say that the big next biggest milestone is who gets to orbit next. Right. Getting to Rocket Lab is like three more steps beyond that even. Right. And, and I think that really just to, you know, not to harp on the company too much and, you know, blow it up a lot, but that's a moat that. Rocket Lab has been able to steadily build on themselves and then the gap they've increased over the rest of the field and the small launcher business. Obviously, you know, some of these companies, so take Firefly and Relativity, for example, that's more in the medium launcher, you know, kind of, you're talking something that's kind of halfway in between Electron and Falcon mm-hmm. 9, right? So there, there's different pieces of, of this marketplace that are going to be uh, up for grabs still. I honestly think right now, I mean, it is a neck and neck race between Astra, Firefly, and then Virgin Orbit, because all three of those are looking to launch their next orbital attempts mm-hmm. in December timeframe. So whether or not some of those slide into January, we'll see. Obviously, the industry is not very known, well known for being on time. <laughs> that is, uh, and that's consistent across the industry. Right. And so those are the three, those are the three that we are really looking to, I think I, I'm going to be really closely watching in the next you know month or so 
to kind of get the pulse on uh, who's going for their attempt first. But you mentioned relativity and relativity space is so, so fascinating. And I'm, I'm hoping to report this, you know, out a little more in depth in the, in the coming days. And so it depends on what, what time this podcast airs. But I, I uh, spoke to people familiar, you know, broke the story earlier this week that they're raising $500 million in fresh capital, which would jump the company's wow. valuation to $2.3 billion, which sounds like a lot of money. And then you add the context that I spoke to the folks over at, uh, at PitchBook who track a lot of the private you know, venture capital piece of this. Relativity, when this round closes, which is expected to in a, in a few days, they would be the second most valuable private space company in the world behind SpaceX. Obviously, what? SpaceX is in the realm of like 44 to $46 billion valuation now. So there's a big gap from 2.3 up. But to have yourself vaulted by a quite a uh, yeah. strength of investor group, I mean, the folks coming in and putting money behind what Relativity is trying to do is really fascinating. And I'm, I'm excited to see where this technology goes. I've seen a lot of their facilities myself in person. They've ramped up testing and development on their engines, and they're still trying to get to uh, first launch by late next year. So there's a lot coming down the pipeline, I think, for Relativity as well. That's really, really exciting. It just sounds like. We have a lot to look forward to in the space industry. Uh, a little internal space race going on here. A fun one. <laughs> so, yeah, no, a private uh, space race. It's, it's, a, it's a race to who can, who can grab these markets and, and really compete the most efficiently. Because I don't think, you know, there's a lot of people who say, oh, there's only room for one or two launchers in the small, you know, small set business, et cetera. I honestly don't necessarily see it as that black and white. I, I could see you know, one or two or four in the medium piece of the business, because, you know, as capacity opens up, it doesn't mean that the the supply side of the launch business is suddenly just going to jump way past demand. The demand side can equally match supply. And so I, I'm curious to see what happens if we do have, a, you know, say three or four of these companies reach orbit in the next six to eight months, what happens? Because all of these companies boast at least, you know, six to seven customers on their pipeline coming for launches. So it's not like, you know, there's one company that has the whole pipeline for launches and no one else has anything. Each of them have different pipelines and have different products that are coming uh, that they want to launch in their orbit. So I think it'll be exciting to see who can continue to grab a uh, market share and, and really then build further momentum. Because like we've seen with Rocket Lab, once when you're the game in town flying, you know you you launch 95 satellites to orbit really really quickly. I mean, they launched their first mission only uh, just over three years ago now, so it's it's pretty amazing to see what they've done in three years. And so I can't, I, it's really hard to fathom what the marketplace is going to look like in three years from now. Even wow. Well, Michael, what is the next thing that you'll be getting into in the field? I mean, I know we're Let's say Rocket Lab launches from Virginia. Would you drive down there? Oh, absolutely. And and uh, I talked to Peter about it. You know, he knows I want to be there. So I, I'd say that the next biggest thing is I'm looking to personally be at. And obviously, all of this depends on the pandemic, right? Like even driving nice. to places, you know, restrictions can change, situations can change. The ones, the really big ones that I'm looking forward to hopefully being there, and these are all up to the companies themselves. So I, I obviously have no control over this, but the first launch from LC2 for Rocket Lab out of Virginia. The the next uh, couple of Virgin Galactic crewed space flights. So 
what either is their first or their second of the test before they fly Branson. I'd, I'd love to be at one of those. We'll see if they're able to have any reporters there or not. I'm not sure. Right. I really would love to go up to Alaska to see Astra's launches. But, you know, that is a that is a trek uh, similar with Rocket Lab. Again, I've been wanting to go out to New Zealand ever since they started launching from there. It helps that New Zealand has really good surfing. So I, <laughs> I might just make a vacation out of it at some point. But um, yeah, that that's another one coming up is Astra's Virgin Orbit. I would love to personally be on, on the plane. I don't know if they're ever going to let any reporters actually fly with them because you can't really see the rocket very well unless you're in another plane. So yeah, you know, a chase plane, right? Yeah. 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 So I, you know, I don't think CNBC is going to give me the budget to book a chase plane anytime soon, but I mean, Hey, I, I would, I would take it if, if the opportunity comes up. William, if you're listening, <laughs> Michael and Robin want to get on the chase plane at some point, no pressure. In the yeah, next no, couple of no years, pressure. Be great. I under, totally understand that it's completely <laughs> ridiculous to ask. And extremely expensive and, and, and dangerous. Expensive. And everything. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The insurance company is going to love that. <laughs> Michael, uh, it's all really always great to have you on the show. This is the first time we've taped remotely. We used to do this at my studio in the city. I hope we do get to do that again in the future. Thank you for your insight and sharing the excitement with our listeners. And I hope to be joining you in the field for Crew 2 at Kennedy. Hopefully we'll get like a socially distant picture together or something. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> here's hoping and here's hoping that the world looks quite a lot different uh, in a good way from now to then, because, you know, so much has changed in the last few months and, and hopefully, you know, things can, can settle down and, and change back pretty soon here. Yeah. Agreed. Thank you so much, Michael. We'll catch up with you hopefully when you're in the field again soon. Thanks, Robin. I always appreciate the time and uh, love coming on the Supercluster Pod. Thank you. <laughs>